Specialty Story, session number 225. You're a non-traditional student entering the medical field on your terms. You may have had some hiccups along the way, but now you're ready to change course and go back and serve others as a physician. This podcast is here to help answer your questions and help educate you on your non-traditional journey to becoming a physician. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I have amazing conversations with physicians about their specialty. Today is no exception. I am talking to a rheumatologist who's been out in practice for three decades, and she's going to talk about her journey to rheumatology and what she likes about it, what she doesn't like about it, and what is rheumatology. We have a great conversation about that. We're talking to Dr. Rosalind Ramsey Goldman, a rheumatologist, about her specialty. We start the conversation by talking about what led her to rheumatology to begin with. So I first became interested in rheumatology during my training in internal medicine. So I was focusing on uh, probably practicing in primary care. So I chose internal medicine as the way to get um, you know, training in that area. And as I was training, I was really most comfortable helping women who had chronic illnesses. And, uh, you know, during your training in internal medicine, you get to do electives and you can choose some specialty areas or special practice situations to try things out. And so I took an elective in rheumatology and it just sort of clicked for me. Um, During this month, I was seeing mostly women who had arthritis or uh, systemic autoimmune disorders. And it was very clear that they needed to have guidance in terms of how to deal with their illness and how to navigate their life with this illness because there were really no cures. And because we deal with a lot of different uh, areas where these diseases can affect you, not just the joints, but in any other body organ, um, it was a a way of doing primary care, but uh, more in a more focused way. Mm. So what uh, you you mentioned it just kind of clicked with you. Was it the the female aspect you like taking care of majority women? Was it just just again that focus kind of taking care of patients where it was just that, that specific type of pathology and and uh complaints that that uh patients were showing up with that just it's, you just enjoyed it the best? Well, I say it's a little bit of all of the above. Um, I really like taking care of women, and at that point, there were very few women physicians. Uh, when I was in medical school, most medical school classes had maybe 5% women. Uh, I was lucky my class was almost a third women, hmm. but once you got out into training, you were frequently the only one, and it was very clear that uh, women really appreciated someone who looked like them taking care of them. For rheumatology, there weren't a lot of things that we could do for patients then, so it was an area that was just ripe for uh, discoveries, and it's also an area where you really have to try to figure out what the problem is. 
And so for all of those reasons, I thought that this might be a good way for me to uh, manage my primary care career, but at least having some control over the time. I was not a big fan of the uh, emergencies um, and uh, all of the acute care. I was much more comfortable, you know, having um, a long-term relationship with a patient and helping them navigate through their life. Yeah. And actually, I think I made the right decision. I went um, into training for rheumatology and uh, we had uh, specialty clinics as part of our training. And one of the clinics was for one of the autoimmune diseases called lupus or systemic lupus erythematosus. And but basically almost the first patient I saw was a pregnant patient with mild lupus, but the issue was that there was a problem with the baby and the baby's heartbeat was too slow. Hmm. And this was a new area of research that was just starting at the time. And this seemed really interesting to me how to take care of patients, but also be involved um, in research. And basically that set me off on my career. <laughs> That's awesome. Before we go any further, for someone just listening to this, maybe they didn't see the title of the episode, and they hear rheumatologist, they're like, like a doctor for rooms. Like I don't, I don't know, like a living room, bedroom, but rheumatologist. For those who haven't heard of a rheumatologist before, what the heck is that? So I'm glad you asked that question because I asked you that um, in terms of how we were going to be talking about um, what I do uh, because that question gets asked all the time and it's actually one of the first things you read about on the website for our professional organization, the American College of Rheumatology. So I'm so glad that I get the opportunity to tell you about what we do. Um, we are internists. Or if you take care of children, it might be a pediatrician. And we specialize in taking care of arthritis and other musculoskeletal conditions, but also systemic autoimmune diseases, sometimes known as collagen vascular diseases or connective tissue diseases. And in this group of diseases, a person's immune system actually attacks the person's own body. So this causes inflammation where it's not really wanted. And then you get problems with pain and swelling. And if it's severe enough, it can damage an organ. So uh, we, I alluded to this earlier, but um, this can affect any part of the body. So of course it includes the joints, the muscles and the bones, but can even affect the eyes, the skin, the kidneys, the heart or the lungs basically any internal organ. And rheumatologists are considered the experts in treating this group of disorders. Yeah. So I, I just did a quick Google. I'm like, because I've always wondered, like, where does room come from? And, and it comes from the Greek word, um, uh, followed by a Latin word, <laughs> um, <laughs> about flow. Right and and early observations uh, before we had all of the cool testing stuff that we have now. Early observations is like, why does like this hand hurt and that foot hurt? It seems like it's flowing all over the body. So that's where the the name comes from. That's fine. Yeah, yeah that's you know really interesting. I mean, when you think about flow, I I think that 
you know, they used to talk about the humors, yep. you know, air and water and so forth. And so a lot of times people described things um, in terms of the different modalities that might recognize flow. And obviously, if you have, you know, a swollen joint or, you know, redness in your face, uh, you know, a description would be, is the blood flowing there? Or why is your, mm-hmm. you know, knee swollen? Um, or why is your whole body swollen if your kidneys aren't working right? So that m- m- makes sense to me. Yeah. So, so technically in medicine, there are, um, there are two flow doctors. There are rheumatologists and there are, uh, uh, urologists. (laughs) 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 A little specialty joke there. Um, let's, let's talk about, uh, traits, um, because a, a lot of students coming into this will go, well, I kind of like this or I'm strong in this area. You've, you've been a practicing rheumatologist now for a few decades. What traits have you seen students, uh, fellows, uh, attendings come in and out of this practice? What, what traits do you think make them successful? Most rheumatologists like to be problem solvers. Or another way to think about it is they like to be detectives and hunt down clues. You have to be curious because a lot of our diseases, you know, present with like different body parts, uh, different kinds of complaints, and sometimes it's not so straightforward how to connect all of them. So you also have to be comfortable with, you know, complex illnesses and maybe not getting the right answer immediately. Um, and because we don't really cure anybody, um, but it's clear that these individuals have to have a lot of empathy. Um, they really need to take time to develop cr- uh, trust with the individual that they're caring for. And because so many areas could be affected, you really have to have some organizational skills to you know, sort of coordinate care across the specialties. Many times we actually have to be advocates for our patients because we have to deal with payers who don't want to pay for tests or approve tests or the medications we want to use. And you have to have a sense of social justice that you have to go ahead and say, no, uh, this is really important and and take the time to um, help get the person the care or the testing, you know, that they need. Mm. What are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions around rheumatology that you, you hear from medical students or maybe uh, internal medicine residents? Uh, well, a lot of the residents, um, if they like procedures um, or like an answer right away, um, they probably won't like what we do or it won't resonate with them. Um, so... If they think we just sit around and don't know how to use a stethoscope, we <laughs> don't know how to put a scope somewhere in an area to look at it, um, you know, they might not be excited about this. But actually, one of the new things that we do, um, and you can get um, certified in it, is to use ultrasound or sound waves to, uh, you know, identify areas that might be swollen that you might not be able to see. And we actually do um, injections. So we have a small procedure component to this. But if you want an answer like right away, 
or uh, you want to be one and done, that's probably not something that um, would resonate, you know, with uh, someone uh, where, where rheumatology would not resonate with that uh, type of individual. Mm. I, and because we can't cure anybody, you know, that that's not t- satisfying. But yeah. we could talk a little bit more about, you know, our breakthroughs later as we yeah. you know, go through the interview. I, I often talk to different specialists, and it's it's a lot of times the proceduralists that don't necessarily have the, uh, what I like to call the Sherlock Holmesing of medicine. A, a lot of students come in because they love that investigation and, and inquisition into like what's going on and figuring out. It sounds like potentially rheumatology may be a great specialty for, for someone who wants to figure out what's going on with a patient. Yes, that's a great way to summarize it. I wish I said it that way. <laughs> you can steal it. <laughs> okay, I will. <laughs> All right, that's good. So um, I, I think a lot of students nowadays uh, potentially will have seen House. Uh, House seemed mm-hmm. to be the the perfect, uh, House MD, the TV show, seemed to be the perfect uh, rheumatologist, like dream patients every single episode. Um do you think House this is a totally off script question? Did House hurt or help the field of rheumatology from from uh, incoming medical students and residents and fellows? Um, well, I'll just answer the rheumatology <laughs> part. I, I probably half the patients' lupus was always in the differential, <laughs> and it never was the answer. Yep. Um, the, where I would say House. I don't know if I would say hurt rheumatology, but really gave a false impression about how doctors work. Yeah. First of all, all these doctors could do all these procedures. And that's not <laughs> yes. real in any way, and that you could get all this fancy stuff done, um, you know, in one place. And so, it, in some sense. It hurt, you know, medicine in general, thinking that, wow, you can figure stuff out and you can learn all of these things. And, and maybe, you know, even before I trained, you could do all of those things because you didn't have that many things that you could do. Um, in fact, if you wanted to, somebody was, you know, uh, was retaining fluid, basically you stuck needles in their legs and you drained the fluid off that way. You would never do anything like that now. It would most likely be, uh, you know, medications or maybe even dialysis, all of which would require specialty training. So, I mean, house was sort of fun and you could try to guess a little bit about what you thought it might be. But in terms of what's really happening in the hospital or in the clinic, it was totally unrealistic. Yeah. Now, so what does a typical day or typical week look like for you? Well, I'll answer that with this caveat in that I do mostly research. So my typical day may not be the same as someone in practice. But I thought I would talk about that first, if that's okay with you. Yeah. Um, Whether you're doing it, you know, in an academic center like me, or, you know, in a private practice, most rheumatologists would be seeing patients almost every day, uh, you know, a full a full day. And they usually would have at least one full day off, or at least two half days off, to take care of all the paperwork that you have to do and following up on all the test results and talking to your colleagues and talking to patients 
uh, you know, to make sure that what you found and, and what your treatments are, and to satisfy all the you know regulatory and legal requirements for um, you know documentation. So someone in practice is you know going to spend a number of hours seeing patients, but there'll be some amount of time to do all the other work that's needed to be sure that your patients are getting what they want. Now I'll turn to what I do, which is um, clinical research. And so my day um, is going to be uh, meetings like this. Well, in, you know, this, you know, <laughs> you're an expert podcaster or, or WebEx or, you know, <laughs> Adobe Connect or something like that. Um, where I'm meeting with colleagues, planning, organizing, or running studies. Um, I'll do a lot of writing um, for funding opportunities or to keep up the research that, you know, might have, uh, you know, regulatory requirements to make sure that I'm meeting all of those um, benchmarks. And then I'm writing a lot to publish our findings in, you know, peer-reviewed journals. I do see patients for clinical care and also for research studies. And a, a portion of what I do is I help other doctors when they have questions about the diagnosis of man and management of lupus or, you know, their um, pregnant patients. Or I'm preparing a lecture, you know, to, you know, teach colleagues, um, you know, some area of lupus or pregnancy. So uh, even though I don't see nearly as many patients as a practicing, you know, clinical rheumatologist, I do lots of different things. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to focus a little bit on the, the research side because there's, uh, I get a lot of questions from students uh, who are thinking about applying to medical school and should I apply MD, PhD, or DO, PhD, thinking that you have to have that PhD to be able to do research. And it sounds like for your career, you kind of stumbled into research uh, after going down this path and, and realizing that you really liked it. How hard was it for you to kind of set up the the life situation, the professional situation you have where you do as much research as you want, you see as many patients as you want, and you don't have to have the, the necessary de degrees after your name, although it, sounds, it looks like you've, you've gone back and got other degrees as you've gone. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I keep going back to that first patient that I talked about earlier mm -hmm. with the pregnancy-related problem. And that really intrigued me. And I went and talked to my division chief and I said, I, you know, I'm really interested in this. What do you think? And I had the support of this individual and actually all there. And they helped me establish, a, you know, a research registry of lupus patients. And um, it was really the support of the mentors and gave me the time and the space helped me write a grant. I actually had funding my first year as a fellow when you're supposed to be doing all of your clinical work. And that set me off um, in, in doing this work. And, um, you know, it was successful. And then they had me apply to graduate school and gave me the time to do the coursework and eventually got a master's and a doctorate in public health. Yeah. And so that starts you off because of all the things you have to do to get those degrees. Um, but that's not a guarantee that you would be 
successful in research. And basically, you have to be persistent, uh, tenacious, and actually have a thick skin because mm -hmm. you get you get turned down a lot. Um, and uh, you just have to have it in in you that you really want to do something, and it's like your personal mission. And I liked the variety of not only being really involved in patient care, but also making a difference in their care, and um, you know making new discoveries. So what I what I did translated into you know successful care. So for example, um, when I started, I had no idea that you know I would be doing research in pregnancy and then uh, you know translating that into taking care of those individuals. And I counted up at one point a few years ago that I was probably involved in at least 300 babies. Um, so that was uh, you know very satisfying. To, it, it, most those would be the ones that were successes, and the numbers that didn't were not successes were probably only two or three, and that's really important to, you know, how you know a woman might be thinking about her life, and then to be told she has a chronic illness that um, could kill her, um, or I have to give her medicines that may or may not affect her fertility, but then also be able to say, yeah, but if we get control of your disease. You might actually be able to have a baby, and that's have to remember those wins when you have all the, you know, not not funded or your paper gets rejected or, you know, you have a big deadline and you've been working too many hours, uh, you know, um, you know to try to get something done. So if you focus, what's important to you and if it's meaningful and you're passionate about it. If you're lucky enough to find something that resonates that way, I think that that really um, would define it because it definitely was not easy um, carving out, you know, a research career, um, you know, without having that PhD or protected time at the beginning. Yeah. Do you think uh, for someone who wants to have a career that you have, should they go the, the MD-PhD route first? I guess it depends on what they want to do. Yeah. Um, if you are working in a laboratory, you know, doing basic science research, you probably want to get the PhD first. I think things move uh, more quickly in that area, and there are a lot of technical um, things that you have to learn uh, and a way of thinking and you have to find what your niche is uh, in terms of you know what technical stuff you need to know, where you're going to develop new um, techniques, and to make the connections. If you're going to be a clinical person, it's still possible to do it backwards like I did. <laughs> um, and, and that the reason why you might, you know, why I could be successful is because the patients are my laboratory. Mm -hmm. So the things that the patients needed would then define what I needed to do from the research standpoint. So I'm not saying it was any easier, but the idea generation and the interaction with patients 
actually helps you build your clinical research um, niche area. Yeah. You mentioned procedures earlier. What types of procedures are rheumatologists doing? So uh, we always um, would uh, try to withdraw fluid from a swollen joint to help with diagnosis. And if it was appropriate, could inject um, you know, a medication to try to help the inflammation. Um, when I was training, you did it blind, meaning all by feeling it. Um, now, with this ultrasound technique, you can um, see where the swelling is located, where the fluid is located, and it helps you position the needle better. So you get a much more precise um, injection and can also help with the diagnosis. I can give you one example of where skin can be affected, but not necessarily at the same time. So there's a skin condition called psoriasis. And if you would do um, this ultrasound exam of the joints in the hand, let's as an example, even though the person might not really be complaining about a lot of swelling in their hand or pain, or you don't see a whole lot of stiffness, you could see some early signs of inflammation through this testing mechanism, this procedure, where you could intervene earlier rather than waiting till it was full blown and you could see it across the room if you walked into the exam room and saw the patient you know, sitting in your office. And the reason why I'm talking about trying to find things earlier is that the sooner you can make a diagnosis and stop the inflammation, you have a much better chance of um, you know, preventing damage. Um, and in this case, it would be to the joints. Mm. You know, our medications are good at stamping out the inflammation, but once the joint is damaged or partially destroyed, I can't fix that. So early diagnosis is, is important. And that's where this new area um, you know, a of enhancing the procedures that we used to do, mm. but gives us a lot more bandwidth to make a difference. Yeah. How early do those diagnoses need to happen? The, the question uh, that I was going to ask next is, in, in terms of call, what does that look like? Uh, are rheumatologists like staying awake at night by their pager, hoping <laughs> or not, uh, for that call to, to come in and make that immediate uh, rheumatologic diagnosis? Or are things not as urgent as that? It's usually the latter. We don't really have a lot of emergencies. Um, and so the, I guess I should have added that earlier on why that was appealing to me, mm -hmm. um, not to be on call all the time. Um, so the, so we don't have a lot of emergencies, thank goodness. Mm -hmm. But they do occur. And in some sense, this is why it's really important to work with frontline providers, particularly the primary care provider or people in the emergency room. Because here, if you miss the opportunity to treat early, um, you know, there's certain kidney problems that progress very quickly or certain types of inflammation of the spinal cord. And if you don't fix that right away, then the person's kidney gets destroyed or they become paralyzed if it's related to the spine. 
So we do have some emergencies. Thank goodness they're rare, mm. but they do occur. And it's very important to be able to work with um, all of your colleagues to make sure that those kinds of things are recognized and then they call you. Yeah. So our call is not onerous um, at all. Now, we could have a few bad weeks here or there with lots of patients, sick patients are in the hospital. But for the most part, most days we're not staying up all night. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, you're an internist by residency training. So four years of medical school, typically three years internal medicine, typically. And then what does uh, rheumatology fellowship look like time wise? So uh, if you're going to do rheumatology fellowship, it's a minimum of two years um, so that you can be credentialed to sit for the boards um, to be a practicing rheumatologist. If you want to do research, then you do an additional year or two to get the research credentialing. Basically, it's to protect your time so that you can um, develop your um, you know, research program. Yeah. Okay. So not not uh, terrible. Still still a couple of years, uh, but not crazy like cardiology with that extra no. <laughs> three years. And, and in fact, in internal medicine, something that used to be present in the 1970s that went away and just came back in the last 10 years is uh, you can be a physician scientist in training in internal medicine and you can cut a year off. So if you already know that you want to do research, when you apply for your internal medicine um, training, you can be in this special program where you do two years of internal medicine and then you automatically go into your specialty training. And the third, since the first year of any of the specialty training, so, you know, it's not unique to rheumatology, but um, I'll use that as an example. Since the first year in rheumatology is all clinical, that counts towards your time um, to be able to sit for the boards for internal medicine. But then you've already done at least one year of your training in rheumatology. Hmm. And, you know, you've already made the decision to do research. So you're going to do at least two more years. But it's possible now that you can get to your research part of your training sooner. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? I do. Um, my children are grown now. Um, when they were younger, uh, my husband's a physician too, and we kind of made a pact that said at least one of us has to be at all of their you know school, sporting events, whatever you know wherever they needed us, and so we were able to do that. So we could say you could have at least one parent. But we couldn't always guarantee that you would have two. Mm. And we also made sure that we took at least one family um, you know, vacation. And because we were so busy during the week, you know, uh, a night out was with our family, not you know, leaving them with a, an, another babysitter at night. And so uh, you know, I would say, you just have to make the time and figure out the balance that works for you. You, While you're living through it, you may not think you have the balance, but when you're done, um, you know, I would say, you know, we're, you know, very proud of our, 
our kids. Yeah. Are there any other specialties that you work closely with as a rheumatologist? I work with every specialty because um, every, you know, any body part could be affected, um, you know, by our diseases. And since I focus on lupus, it can affect any part of the body. Probably the people I work with the most are the nephrologists uh, because uh, kidney involvement is the most common serious thing that lupus patients have. Um, but we also work with dermatologists and blood specialists and neurologists, you know, so, uh, and, and because of my interest in pregnancy, you know, high risk will be. Uh, but I would say uh, I work with a lot of different people. And we're talking here about MDs, but, you know, I have to deal with physical therapists, with, um, you know, those supporting mental health, um, you know, work with the pharmacist. In fact, I have a slide where I put rheumatologist in the center of the universe, <laughs> and I probably have like 20 different services surrounding me that I might have to um, interact with. So it does keep you on your toes. I mean, you have to be able to, uh, you know, have at least some working knowledge of, you know, a lot of different specialties um, so that you can have, you know, good conversations and coordinate care with all the people that these um, individuals need. Yeah. Do the, the coordinating care thing uh, sparked another question for me. Uh, a lot of times subspecialists kind of turn into the primary care doc. Is that is that a common thing for rheumatologists? I think if you're a practicing rheumatologist, that frequently helps. Mm. Um, for someone in academics, usually they have other responsibilities. So they don't really have the office hours to take care of the non-rheumatologic problems. So uh, in, in our area, we don't do a whole lot of primary care. Um, it's mostly coordinating with someone, uh, someone else's doctor. Practice. You frequently wear both hats, internal medicine or primary care, and you're also the rheumatologist. Yeah, okay. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into the field? Um, I wish I knew how exciting it was going to be. I mean, obviously, I already felt the kinship with this specialty, but we had really very few effective treatments, if any, when I started. Um, and we've made particularly big strides in treating um, rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis we really make a difference in there. A whole host of medications that we can use that really make a huge difference in how people, you know, can function and give them back their lives. You know, my bias, of course, is I hope that lupus is the next area where we make a big breakthrough. We actually didn't have a new medication for almost 50 years, um, you know, for lupus, and we had our first new drug specifically designed for lupus approved in 2011. And just in the last year, we had three new approvals. So um, I think we're on the cusp of being able to make a difference in the disease where you know, I have the most um, interest in and experience. And I talked about those 300 babies earlier. Um, I would have had no clue that I would have had that much of an impact on mm families when I first started. I mean, I took care of one patient. <laughs> yeah. 
let's let's talk about those treatments. So uh, a common question I like asking is is kind of what sort of major changes do you see coming? The the world of biologics in the pharmaceutical uh, industry has um, has changed life for many patients. Um, it also comes with really big bills. Um, mm-hmm. But but talk about like why why are we seeing so much change in, in the past five, 10 years? Well, I think that's part of what's exciting about rheumatology is the discovery in the laboratory, which, you know, identified areas where, um, you know, you could intervene and then the drugs were developed based on that. So if you're, you know, inclined to do, you know, laboratory research for those people who, um, made those discoveries in the lab and to see it actually make a difference in people's lives is, uh, you know, tremendous. Um, So uh, I'm thinking about the patients that I saw uh, as a fellow, mostly women, uh, many of them them with significant deformities of their joints, um, and many of them needing surgery. And now you don't see that anymore. The other um, example I can give you uh, is when I was training. If someone heard that you had lupus, an OB doctor would say you could never have a baby. Even if they just had um, skin involvement and no internal organ involvement, uh, you know, they were told they could never have children. And that's not true either. So, I mean, realize that's not a biologic you know, or a new drug, um, but it's a way of thinking that it is possible to do things that you never thought that you could do based on uh, using our medications, treating earlier, having the new uh, medications, uh, you know, coordinating better across all the specialties, knowing that uh, people who, you know, had let's say lupus, only worried about lupus, but you really have to be sure that they're taking care of the rest of the body, um, even if it's not, you know, a lupus-specific treatment, but they shouldn't be smoking. Uh, You know, their blood pressure needed to be controlled. Um, You need to help them, you know, be active. You try not to uh, have them, you know, gain, you know, weight where they'd be at risk for diabetes. You go ahead and you treat the cholesterol. So it's a whole range of things on top of the biologics or along with the biologics that have made a huge difference in how people with, you know, rheumatic diseases, um, you know, can fare these days. Yeah, that's great. What do you like the most about being a rheumatologist? That I make a difference in people's lives. Um, I reduce their pain. Um, I give them back or improve their quality of life and help them, you know, attain whatever their personal goals are. So do they want to go to school? Um, do they want to have a family? Um, do they want to work? Um, you know, even though I can't cure it, I can manage a lot of things that they do. And they may think, you know, when they're in the throes of, you know, their first flare up that, you know, they're never going to escape and I can make a difference there. What do you like the least? That I can't cure it. 
Yeah. I mean, I, it's not a one and done. I can't give them penicillin or something like that and take away their sore throat. Um, you know, it, it's never going to be that easy, or at least as what we understand about our diseases right now. Yeah. Um, but maybe I can prevent things. I think if you set sort of reasonable goals and benchmarks, it can still be satisfying. Yeah. Do you think we'll ever get to to cure with maybe new ways of doing bone marrow transplants or figuring out uh, how to how to kill all the bad cells like we do in cancer and and let the immune system kind of reset itself? Um, I I think that's one of the possibilities. In fact, one of the studies that we're doing now is actually using umbilical cord stem cells mm-hmm. to treat um, lupus. And in that case, you don't have to do all that chemotherapy ahead of time like the traditional bone marrow. So fingers crossed that this yeah. would work. I mean, that would be very cool. Yeah. I guess the other concept I would sort of bring up that's very exciting is to think about prevention. Most of what we've been talking about is treatment. So that's sort of reactive. I have the disease and what am I going to do about it? Um, and yes, we can do a whole lot better these days. But wouldn't it be intriguing to see if I could figure out who the high-risk person was and be able to do something so either they don't get the disease at all mm-hmm. or they get you know a very mild variant of it. And yeah. so being uh, proactive, I think that would be really cool. Yeah, and, and we have the the interesting study that that was recently released, or at least news uh, made from uh, with Epstein Barr and MS, um, mm-hmm. and and how do we potentially cure people of Epstein Barr virus? Uh, how do we uh, vaccinate against Epstein Barr so people don't get it? And will MS go away? <laughs> Neurologists have more time on their hand to to deal with other. Uh, neurologic conditions and so wh- where can we potentially find uh, that sort of data and information is, th- is there some common childhood uh, virus that, that we don't know yet that's causing all of this lupus that it'd be very interesting yeah um, you know in terms of the Epstein-Barr you know that's really pretty ubiquitous I suppose we could aim for vaccine but maybe the first step would be to see who the high risk person is who's had the, had the virus, and um, maybe that's where you intervene. I'm not sure we could stop the infection, but yeah. maybe we could identify the person who's had it um, with the you know, right you know, genetic background or epigenetic background, mm-hmm. and um, you know, do some monitoring. And as soon as you see some change in the immune system, uh, you know, if we had some way to stop that, maybe that's how you could prevent yeah. the disease. I, I do think we have a natural experiment. Fascinating. The rheumatologists are all over this with the, you know, COVID-19. Yeah. Because you do make antibodies. Um, lupus is not a big deal uh, in terms of new lupus, but other rheumatic diseases are. And I'm just beside myself with curiosity to think about this natural experiment and hopefully we can understand what's happening to the immune system if there's got to be any kind of silver lining you know with this this current infection and pandemic yeah i was going to ask that because i i know that um diabetes um 
has been seeing a huge increase with COVID, post-COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rheumatology world is also seeing uh, rheumatic diseases increase as well? Some. Some. There are intriguing things like the blood clotting is mm-hmm. similar to the phospholipid added body, but not exactly the same. There's been some giant cell arteritis, some vasculitis, I believe some um, Sjogren's. have been a few lupus cases, but it may be that this virus is tickling the immune system somehow, and in the right, you know, predisposed situation, over time we'll see that. I mean, they even see these antibodies, mm-hmm. you know, the anti-nuclear antibody, which is not diagnostic of lupus, because you can see that in a lot of autoimmune diseases, but maybe that's the first antibody that gets done, and if the immune system gets out of control, then you make the other antibodies, and then eventually you cross the threshold to having systemic disease. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The more you talk, it, it just seems very much... Um, I, I have very much like a computer programmer's mind of uh, just thinking... Like, how do we code this uh, in terms of like, okay, I have this end, end product that I want. What, what kind of code do I need to get there? And it seems like with rheumatology, that sort of thinking would fit my brain very well of like, well, we have this pathway and that pathway and this cascade and that cascade and these triggers and like, how do we block and how do we support? And um, that's, that's very, uh, very much a, a fun way of thinking for me. Well, it's fun for me, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, with with it being fun for you, if, if you had to do it all over again, would you still be a rheumatologist? I would. Yeah. For the hopefully future rheumatologists listening to this, what final words of wisdom do you have for them? I think it's a really exciting time to be a rheumatologist. Actually, a lot of our medications were repurposed for COVID. Uh, I think inflammation um, is the you know one of the fundamental uh, mechanisms of disease and um, sometimes we joke and say cardiology should really be rheumatology. Um, a lot of the heart problems are uh, starting uh, start out with inflammation. So I would just emphasize again it's really an exciting time to be a rheumatologist. We make a difference in improving the lives of many individuals and even though our work days might be long it's very fulfilling because we have a significant impact on on a person's care all right there you have it again dr rosalind ramsey goldman a rheumatologist talking about her specialty i hope this was helpful for you if you are interested in rheumatology i want you to go check out the american college of rheumatology at rheumatology.org half of the trouble with rheumatology is learning how to spell it kind of like ophthalmology if you if you can spell it you can be one that's, that's, that's the rule in this process. So go to rheumatology.org to check out the American College of Rheumatology and go find a rheumatologist to shadow if this is a specialty you may be interested in in the future. We have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.